0: Would you like to poop in the garden with me? Yeah, would you like to poop? Would you like to poop in the garden with me? Yeah, would you like to poop? Would you like to poop in the garden with me? Yeah, would you like to poop? Would you like to poop in the garden with Dan? Yeah, would you like to poop? Would you like to poop in the garden with me? Would you like to poop? Would you like to poop in the garden with me? Would you like to poop? Would you like to poop in the garden with me? Yeah, would you like to poop? Dan would like you to poop in the garden with him. Would you like to poop? Would you like to poop in the garden with me? Would you like to poop? Would would you like to poop in the garden with me? Yeah, would you like to poop? Would you like to poop in the garden garden with with me? Yeah, would you like to poop? Would you like to poop in In the the garden with Dan? Yeah, would you like to poop? Would you like to poop in the garden with Dan? Yeah, would you like to poop? (laughs)
1: Good afternoon. You're listening to The Living Writer's Show on WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. My name is Ashley David. Thanks for joining us today. My guest today is writer, fiction writer, predominantly um, Julie Oringer. And um, if we take a look at all of her accomplishments, it reads sort of like the who's who list of possibilities. Her first book, How to Breathe Underwater was named by the New York Times Book Review, a notable book, and by the San Francisco Chronicle. It was the best book of the year and winner of the Northern California Book Award. It's been translated into French, German, Dutch, Italian, and I believe Norwegian, Japanese, and Portuguese are on the way. Um, Stories in the Paris Review, Zoetrope, All Story, Pushcart Prize, Yale Review, Plowshares, and others. Um, Julia is currently teaching at the University of Michigan, but it's not... Completely uncommon for me to have an introduction like that to make um, for the folks who come on the show. What is unusual about today's introduction is that um, Julie's work and example have been so personally meaningful to me. Julie's been a teacher of mine and actually encouraged me to come to Michigan. So it's um, both a great honor and um, a very nerve-wracking experience to have you here. Welcome. <laughs>
2: Thanks a lot, Ashley. I was going to have to make the full disclosure if you didn't. So I'm glad <laughs> we'll just put it right out there. Julie's my teacher. That's
1: right. <laughs> <laughs> so I'll stutter about and you know let you run
2: the show. <laughs> yeah, right. No, now you're running the show. This is exciting for me.
1: <laughs> we'll do a title exercise and then move right on. That's right. Um, well, we always start the show with a little bit from the, the work of the author. And so would you read a bit for us from Note to Sixth Grade Self, one of the stories in
2: your collection of short stories, How to Breathe Underwater? Sure. Note to Sixth Grade Self. On Wednesdays, wear a skirt. A skirt is better for dancing After school, remember not to take the bus. Go to McDonald's instead. Order the fries. Don't even bother trying to sit with Patricia and Kara. Instead, try to sit with Sasha and Tony Sue. If they won't let you, try to sit with Andrea Shaw. And if Andrea Shaw gets up and throws away the rest of her fries rather than sit with you, sit alone and do not look at anyone, particularly not the boys. If you do not look at them, they may not notice you sitting alone. And if they don't notice you sitting alone, there's still a chance that one of them will ask you to dance. At 3.30, stand outside with the others and take the number 7 bus uptown. Get off when they all get off. Be sure to do this. Do not stare out the window and lose yourself. You'll end up riding out to the edge of town, past the rusted gas storage tanks, and you will never find the right bus home. Pay attention. Do not let the strap of your training bra slip out the armhole of your short-sleeved shirt. Do not leave your bag on the bus. As you cross the street, take a look at the public high school. The kids there will be eating long sticks of Roman candy and leaning on the chain-link fence. Do they look as if they care who dances with whom or what steps you'll learn next? Newsflash, they do not. Try to understand that there's a world larger than the one you inhabit. If you understand that, you'll be far ahead of Patricia and Kara. For now, though, you live in this world, so go ahead and follow the others across the street to Miggy's Academy of Dance. There's a low fence outside. Do not climb on it in your skirt. Huddle near the door with the other girls. See if anyone will let you listen. Do not call attention to yourself. Listen as Patricia, with her fascinating stutter, describes what she and Kara bought at the mall. Notice how the other girls lean forward as she works through her troublesome consonants, g-g-guess jeans, and in a spree sweater. They will talk about the TV shows they watch, who killed whom, who is sleeping with whom. They will compare starlets' hairstyles. None of this talk is of any importance. For God's sake, don't bother watching those TV shows. Keep reading your books. At four o'clock, go inside with the others. Line up against the wall with the girls. Watch how the boys line up against their wall, popular ones in the middle, Awkward ones at the sides. Watch how the girls jockey to stand across from the boys they like. Watch Brittany Wells fumble with the zipper of her nylonless sportsack. sports sack. Don't let her get next to you with that thing. Try to stand across from someone good. Do not let yourself get pushed all the way out to the sides, across from Zachary Booth or Ben Dusseldorf. Watch how Patricia and Kara stand, their hips shot to one side, their arms crossed over their chests. Try shooting your hip a little to one side. Rest your weight on one foot. Draw a circle on the wooden floor with one toe. Do not bite your fingernails. Do not give a loud sniff. Think of the word nonchalant. Imagine the 11th graders the way they look when they smoke on the bus. Let your eyes close halfway.
1: Thank you very much. That's Julie Orringer reading... From the story Note to Sixth Grade Self, which is part of her collection, How to Breathe Underwater. So tell us a little bit about this collection and how it came to be um, the collection that it is. What what went in it and what didn't go into it? Um, how... Um, the reason I had you start here with reading this particular story has to do with um, the ways in which this particular character is creating her own world um, out of a world that's excruciating, the preteen world of sixth grade. Um, and I'm wondering how you think or about or thought about putting together this book as the world it would be.
2: It's an interesting question because for most of the time when I was writing the stories that were in this book, I wasn't really thinking about a book per se. I was thinking about each story individually. Um, and there were a lot of stories I wrote during that time um, that didn't end up making it into the book. Um, and it's something that I've been talking to my grad students here at Michigan about because uh, of the stories I wrote while I was a grad student, only one of them ended up making its way into this book and in a much altered form. Um, and so so part of the process of creating this book was throwing a lot of work away and trying to figure out what was good and what wasn't. Um, and so I think that that the book is kind of a, um, it's kind of a, it's not just a collection of nine stories that have to do with the lives of young w- women. It's also kind of about the process of learning how to write in a way, even though that's far beneath the surface and none of the stories are about writing per se. Um, so... As I went farther along, um, I saw that, that there were certain themes that came into the work repeatedly. Um, there was the idea of someone being on the outside of social groups and trying to find a way in or, as you suggest, create a, a world that will be somehow equally fulfilling if on the outside. Um, there was um, kind of a a pervasive sense of loss, either of a certain kind of innocence or of um someone whom the narrator or the protagonist of the story was very close to, um, a parent or a friend. Um and um and then there was also I think a sense of um what it meant to be caught somewhere between childhood and adulthood. Um and that's that's a different place for, for different characters. For some of these characters it happens rather early even um, before adolescence, I think, um, as the issues that the characters face become adult issues really early on. And then for some of the other characters, it doesn't happen until they're they're in their later 20s um, and they're really having to, to sort of grasp or feel the loss of the grasp of, of some kind of adulthood. Um, and so then I think once I became aware of some of those themes, then I started to imagine that that um, that there might be something unifying these stories and that they might work together um, within a single book. And that happened before I wrote the final stories for the collection. And so I did have some of the themes in mind when I was writing some of the later pieces.
1: In thinking about... Um Teaching yourself to write or learning how to write, uh, um, and you know, tossing out the work from grad school and getting Mm -hmm. it. You you studied um, creative writing at Cornell as an undergrad, and then were at that Iowa Writers' Workshop, and then um, a Stegner Fellow in California at Stanford. Um, And then the book came out short a year or two after your Stegner Mm -hmm. Fellowship when you were teaching. So in that process of of learning how to write, um, was the material of this transition from sort of childhood to adulthood or um, childhood to a a mature place, um, that that parallel of your characters' lives um, in some ways parallels the process of your writing life. Um, Was that a useful parallel to draw on as you developed as a writer? Um, Your characters mature themselves as people and you mature as a writer, or is that
2: um, a sort of coincidental parallel? (laughs) It certainly wasn't something that I was thinking about so much consciously, although um, there is one character um, in a story called When She Is Old and I Am Famous, who's a, a painter, um, and she's sort of dealing with a lot of her her artistic shortcomings, even as she's trying to um, figure out what it is about her work that might um, be of value. And I wrote that story not long after moving to San Francisco, Um, and I was out of school for the first time in my life, um, working at a fertility clinic as a receptionist, um, so I was answering phones eight and a half hours a day and trying to write in the evenings, and it just felt like a crazy thing to be doing, to be living in this expensive city during the internet boom, um, working a job I hated and trying to put some stories down on the page, um, and I think that was one story where I was working out um, the conflict I felt between um, the the real desire I felt to, um, to try to learn how to write um, and what I felt were the shortfalls in my own ability to do what I hope to do. And I think at the time I thought, oh, this is going to get a lot better and I'm going to get a lot more confident as I go along. And Um, In certain ways, that's been true. But in other ways, I think the the self-doubt remains pretty strongly. And it seems to be there for for writers I know at all different stages of their careers. And so I think that maybe one place where the artistic maturation happens is in learning to manage the doubt a little bit better and and figuring out ways that it can work for you instead of against you and, and help you to to try harder and and be a little bit better um, rather than to allow it to stop you. And in a way, I think that maybe that's part of what happens between childhood and adolescence too, you know, uh, and uh, adolescence and adulthood, that we sort of hopefully become more conscious of our failings as human beings and try to do something about it or um, at least learn how to work around them. (laughs) One can only hope (laughs) Right
1: (laughs) Well, we're going to take a short break And then we'll be right back You're listening to The Living Writers Show On WCBN-FM Ann Arbor My name is Ashley David My guest today is Julie Orenger We'll be right back Say love me, leave me, let me
0: be lonely You won't believe me, but I love you only I'd rather be lonely than happy with somebody else I find the night time, the right time for kissing. Night time is my time for just reminiscing. Regretting instead of forgetting somebody else. There'll be no one unless that someone is you. I intend to be independent.
1: We're back. This is Ashley David. That was Nina Simone. And we're speaking with Julie Oringer today. When one of your teachers was Tobias Wolf um, uh, when you were at Stanford and you've been quoted in an interview quoting him um, at a reading when um, he was talking to someone at the end of the um, the reading and the Man he was speak- speaking with said yeah you know that was a great reading and I was thinking I might want to try my hand at some stories and I believe that Toby Wolfe's response was something to the effect that yeah this man was a, a surgeon and I was thinking about being a brain surgeon mm-hmm. <laughs> um, one of the things that um, strikes me about that quote which I have used to someone who pr- proposed a workshopy sort of thing about how folks were going to immediately be writers. Um, was the example that you set in the class I took with you, and by your own example, which is that writing takes a lot of time and a lot of dedication. And you mentioned in the first part of this show that How to Breathe Underwater, um, by and large, is not the book you wrote in grad school, um, and not the book you wrote as an undergrad, and not the book you wrote when you started writing as a child. And um, this is a book that comes out of writing for many years, uh, writing with much discipline for many years, um, and learning. and um, yet folks have the impression that um, books just happen and then they run off and are successful. And I wonder if you'd talk a little bit about um, the... I promised in the little promo I sent out to people that we talk about literal and metaphorical jet lags. So let's talk about some sort of uh, metaphorical jet lag between a book on the shelf and someone reading it and what has gone into it If it's if it's a book that is really um, all it's cracked up to be, which yours is.
2: Well, there is this sense of a very long delay. Um, and it's, it's interesting that, you know, the book contains the stories and they all happen for the reader, you know, within the period of time that it takes to, to read the thing. Whereas the process of actually, um, writing the stories takes a lot longer, obviously. And then the, then there's the fact that some of the stories are written much much earlier than others and so um so there's a kind of timeline embedded within the book that the, that no reader will ever know about um and i i think that where it comes out for me is is when i'll read from the stories um or i'll look back at the stories and i'll see some of them that look quite a bit younger than others and where i've made choices that that i wouldn't make now um and um It was something that was kind of scary to me before the book was published, and I thought, oh, my God, you know, now these stories are coming out into the light, and once they hit the page, there's really nothing I can do about that anymore. Actually, that didn't turn out to be true because they came out in hardcover, and then a year later they came out in paperback, and I actually got to make changes between the two versions and made quite a few small changes. Um, But more or less, they remain the same. Um, And as I was dealing with the... um, trepidation that I had about moving from the story as something that was very private and um, and malleable to something that was there on the page. I was talking to another professor of mine, Elizabeth Talent, um, who had also you know, expressed understanding of, of that fear. And she said, you know, um, what you have to remember is that if you're going to write some books, at a certain point, you have to write your first one. And then you have to go and work on the second one, and then the third one, and and um, and none of those are going to be the same. You're going to be moving through a trajectory of learning um, through the whole process, um, and you have to be comfortable with the idea that you're going to be developing as a writer. You better be developing, and so it's okay if that first book shows some of the, um, you know, some some hallmarks of. Your youth as a writer—it should—and um, it—it was, it was an awfully encouraging thing to hear, um, and it, it sort of made me feel, like it—I guess it reminded me that, um, that even the failures in this book um, were attempts, um, and and they were, um, yeah, they were ways in which um, I was sort of moving towards something, um, and. I guess that's or that's what I hope, anyhow. Um, and so now with the book um, that I've been working on for the last four years, um, which you're working is, on a novel. That's right. Um, it's it's quite a different book. Not only is it a novel instead of a short story collection, but it's also set just before and during the Second World War, and it has a male protagonist. Um, and um, and so it's funny to think of the short story collection now being. Um, the last thing that I've put out there in the world because I've sort of been in my mind with the novel, um, for such a long time that sort of that feels like the, the front and centre book for me. <laughs>
1: And does that then make it difficult to talk about work that's i've i've heard had people tell me, "Oh my goodness, it's done! I just so don't want to talk about it and now I have to go on a book tour and I have to keep talking about it until the next one comes out i mean is it is it hard to live with your work as object in the world um versus living with your work as object you are
2: creating um not not so much i mean i I feel a kind of um, comfort and nostalgia when I go back and look at those stories. It's sort of like coming back to a place where you lived when you were younger um, and walking around there. You know those streets really well. You know the shops and the people. And um, and I think because I felt like I had enough time to make the stories as good as I could have made them at that time, I feel pretty comfortable with, with what the book is now. Um, and so... Um, so it's, it's, you know, it's a place that I don't mind going back to, even though I feel like I'm now someplace else.
1: How do you feel about going to it in another language? I'm, I, I'm guessing, although I don't know that you don't speak all of the languages I listed <laughs> into which the book has been translated, how do you feel about somebody taking, you very carefully crafted all the words in that book, and now someone has taken them and carefully crafted them into another language, do you, how do you feel about that process of translation?
2: you know it's it's such a um it's such a mystery to me i guess the uh, it's something that i'm fascinated by um but how a translator captures not just the words but some sense of the writer's work um mm-hmm. and brings it into another language and and it's something that i always wonder about when i'm reading the works in translation that i really love you know when i'm reading haruki murakami or um when i'm i'm reading flaubert or whatever it may be just to um you know, to think about the difference between that and and um what it might feel like to read it in the original, but um I kind of feel um, that the I trust the process of translation to a large extent because i I know a little bit about the foreign publishers and the other books that they publish and and um I feel like they are the ones who sort of take it upon themselves to to do a good job of it and and whether it's good or not I really can't say I mean I've read a couple of the um the foreign language translations and they they've seemed great I think what's really reassuring is when translators will write to you and ask some some very small question um about something that's you know that's that's particular to your American experience um and so I know that if they're thinking at that degree of detail then then you know, um, it probably bodes well for the translation. <laughs> Feeling to, good about the yeah. direction,
1: yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, you are also a teacher. Um, as I mentioned in the int- introduction, you're not only teaching here at the University of Michigan, but you were my teacher when I was um, trying to muster up the courage to take my own writing seriously back in California a few years ago. And um, we've talked a little bit about some of your teachers, Elizabeth Talent and um, Tobias Wolf. Has the process of teaching affected your, or or how has the process of teaching affected your way of thinking about your own writing? Um, looking at other folks' work and helping them figure out how to make that better and um, more mature and, you know, move along. Is that a wholly other enterprise than the process you go through in thinking about your own work? Or does it sort of, do they feed each other?
2: I think the way in which they feed each other is that teaching requires you to articulate your own beliefs about the craft. Um, and I think that's that's a very useful thing to do because when you're writing, you're sort of alone with the world that you're trying to create and with these characters and with the language. And um, you have a sense for um, what the right decisions are, but you don't always know why they're the right decisions and sometimes I think teaching requires you to um, to become much clearer about that that particular thing and so um, and it's a constantly evolving practice too I always like to teach different short stories when we um, when we look at published short stories to talk about different aspects of craft I don't like to use the same reading lists over and over because um, I guess I guess I want to reframe the questions to myself again and again, you know why why is it good to allow plot to arise out of character rather than the reverse? Um, why is it good to choose the most specific word for um for an action or an object um i mean the the answers are kind of obvious, but it's but there are always different answers, or the answers evolve as i think as writers evolve um And so it's been very useful, I think, in that sense to to sort of be um, more clear about the craft. Um, And it's also fascinating to see the chances that students take in their work, and that can be really lovely and invigorating.
1: One of the things that is taught to students often and I have taught them is is about what a short story is has to do with um, this notion of epiphany that we talk about often with respect to Joyce and and that a short story is um, something happens to X character that changes him or her and YZ and ABC ways um, as a place to start because a lot of folks come into an introductory class particularly saying, well, what am I supposed to do? Um, What is a story? And they want an answer like 2 plus 2 equals (laughs) 4. That's Mm -hmm. a story. Um, And in an interview I found of yours that is published online, um, you question this notion that a story has to do with um, epiphany and with a character changing. Would you talk a little bit about what that might mean and whether or not I've gotten the right take on what you said there
2: yeah I, I think I know which interview you're r- referring so
1: the burn, to the Birnbaum interview um,
2: I yeah I think that one of the things that, that I was um, reacting against there was the notion that um, in my own short stories um, well there, there are a lot of horrible things that happen to the young people in this collection and, yes. <laughs> um, and one of the um, the interviewers who I had spoken to before I talked to Birnbaum, um seemed to want to um, to look at those awful things as as being strengthening or being really good for um, for character or for um i don't know that that somehow the awful things that happen to us make us better people and are therefore somehow really important and valuable to have in our lives and um I think i was I was arguing against that notion and saying you know just thinking, look, sometimes the bad things that happen to you are really just only bad, and um, what they give to you as a human being aren't worth it um, and i you know i mean that's that's a way of sort of speaking strongly against the other notion, um, kind of unilaterally and and what I truly believe probably falls some some place in the middle um, but I think that in in this conception of the short story as something that has to contain um, an epiphany or a particular kind of character change I think that that um, sometimes the easy move is to find um, the silver lining in the bad thing that you have happen to the characters and, um, and sometimes I think the truest thing that a short story can do is to um, call a really horrible thing by its name and Portray it um honestly, and that doesn't necessarily mean that a character is going to be changed by it. It might just mean that a character um, has some greater grasp of of what it actually is that that he or she has experienced and maybe maybe that's just another way of saying epiphany, but um I think that that there are different ways of um coming at the truth about experience and maybe the epiphany suggests a more violent arrival at that truth. um, Whereas sometimes I think I'm much more interested in in a kind of gradual, uh, almost horrified dawning of understanding. (laughs) Um, So there we are. Well, we
1: are at the top of the hour, which means we have to take a, a short break and do our station ID and then we'll come back and talk about how this process differs a little bit in writing the, a longer piece, writing the novel you're working on now. You are listening to The Living Writers Show on WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. My name is Ashley David. My guest today is Julie Oringer, and we'll be right back. <laughs> the Living Writers Sean, WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. My name is Ashley David. My guest today is Julie Orringer. We're talking mostly about her collection of short stories, How to Re- uh, Breathe Underwater, um, in the service of talking about how to write and what writing is. But I'd like to switch now to talk a little bit more about the project you've been involved in in the time since How to Breathe Underwater has come out, which is a novel set in Paris and Budapest before and during and after the Second World War. Um... One of the things you said to me when I was in your class a few years ago was um, to take a short story and the form of the short story and use that to help you learn to write. Um, It's a very useful tool for learning to write the stories you want to write. And... um, don't try and bite off something as big as a novel right now. (laughs) You sent me home. And I Mm -hmm. thought about that for a while and took a much smaller piece of the pie next time. Um, So let's talk a little bit about the switch you're making or have been making over the last few years now. Uh, um, From working through um, what you have learned and have accomplished as a short story writer to now work on becoming
2: a novelist. So... um this transition was one that I, at a certain point, didn't think I would ever make um, or would ever feel the need to make because I so loved working in the short story form. Um, and I think that that there was so much pleasure in it and so much challenge in it that I thought, well, um, I could spend my whole life as a writer here and be perfectly content. Um, but I came across a story um, that... Felt like it was much larger than the confines of the short story form. It felt like it, in order to be told adequately, it really needed um, a, a lot more narrative room um, and the possibility for a lot more characters and more complicated interleavings of of plot and event. Um, and so, uh, so I started to think about what it might look like as a novel um, and spent about six months just trying to sort of conceptualize it and do a little bit of research about it um, because I knew that it was going to, to take place before and during the Second World War. Um, and it was it came out of um, the experiences of my mother's father, who was born in Hungary in uh, 1917 and went on to study architecture for a couple of years in Paris from 37 to 39, and then um, went back to Hungary when his student visa ran out and was conscripted into the Hungarian labor service, um, which was the the part of the army in which young Jewish men could serve at that time. Um, And so he spent years um, in and out of the labor service during the war um, and it nearly killed him, but in the end um, was probably responsible in some ways for saving him Um, and so this this idea was so incredible um that the idea that somebody could have gone to paris and conceptualized a life for himself that you know that involved this very detailed study and would have you know formed a lot of friendships and relationships with the professors and then have had that completely taken away and subsumed by uh, what was going on uh politically um, and um it, it was just it was such a it just felt like such a horrifying um, depersonalizing experience and I, I I, had heard snippets of this story on and off throughout my entire childhood and, um, and early adulthood but hadn't ever really pursued the details of the story until my husband and I were about to embark on a trip to Paris and my grandfather said, oh you know I was in Paris when I was a young man. And I said, well, you know, I'd love to hear more about that. And so we sat down and started talking about um, what had happened to him. And, and I thought, well, there's there's a, a story here that wants to be told, and it's much longer than a short story. And then that was sort of where the idea for the novel began. And the novel itself is, is actually quite different from um, the trajectory of my grandfather's experiences. Um, there are different characters and um, different events and and different emotions and of course i've had to imagine my way into these experiences that are incredibly um, different from my own Um, and and that's been a challenge but it's also been something that i've been very excited about and part of what i think has carried me through the project
1: is it um, coming to an end is it fair to ask are you about to finish it or are you do you still have a bit more are you still in the in the sort of thick as it were
2: well I'm certainly I certainly feel like I'm in the thick of it because I'm I'm in the midst of revising it now so um, I'm working on a fourth draft now um, and I've cut about 150 pages out of an originally very very long draft I I guess the original draft was about 850 pages and so it's down to around 700 now and so um, so now I'm just sort of going back through and trying to Work out some of the the problems that have been with me for a long time, but i it was really important to me i think um to to just try to get through a draft without worrying too much about revision and that was important in short story writing too that I felt like I had to kind of cruise through um at least a first attempt without being too critical because I knew that um that I was going to lose a lot and move things around and um and I wanted the thing to to remain malleable um, until I had it all out on the page, more or less, and could then go back and move around early parts, knowing where I was heading t- towards. Um, and so, in that sense, it's been um, it's been similar to short story writing, although it's it's been different in the sense that um, my conception of the book evolved so much during those years that it took to write the first draft that the changes I ended up making were, were much more far reaching and profound when I actually went back and, and worked on the earlier parts of the draft.
1: You've said um, in many different ways, I think in class, when I was in your class, and I've heard it quoted elsewhere, that sometimes it's not until the fourth, fifth, sixth, tenth draft of a short story that you know where the short story is going. You don't have six ten drafts necessarily available to you in an 800 page novel um did why you, not ashley well i mean you might <laughs> do
2: you I, do you I've feel never, you have the same um the same uh space for revision absolutely yeah um i feel i, I have to you know i have to allow myself the the, the time and the patience to give it as many drafts as it's going to take especially cuz this is a first novel and I'm trying to figure out how to write a novel so um yeah you're right that that maybe we um maybe it's easier to turn through drafts of a short story um and so it feels kind of less daunting to think that there might be eight drafts of a short story but um but I I certainly feel like you know it's just as important to be as assiduous a reviser for the novel as it was for the short stories um especially because there's so much historical detail that i want to really try to get right and because the experiences are f- farther from my own um so but but i guess the difference comes in just trying to um Keep mustering the the energy and the bravery to approach what you know really is now is sitting on my desk is like a big tall chunk of paper that I have to part sort of, of a tree. Leaf, <laughs> yeah, leaf through um, every day. And, um,
1: do you so. go in at different parts, and um, or do you start at the beginning and go? You know, how how do you think about that, or does you think of it differently?
2: Well, at this stage, it's been really helpful for me to to go through chronologically. I mean, go through from page one to page. 6.99 or whatever it is now. Um, I think because as I've been working on the revision, it's really helpful for me to have the um, you know the last couple chapters in my mind as I'm working on the current chapter, and to have them be a little bit more present than if I were skipping around. Um, and also, I think, because that's going to be the reader's experience of the book. Um, and so I wanted to sort of feel continuous in that way. Um, I think a little bit later on in the game, when um, when there's maybe less to do from page to page, um, I'll be able to skip around a little bit more. Um, but for now, it's 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 been very helpful to me to be able to to go through chronologically.
1: Is that patience, um, something that's hard? You I mean you mentioned the bravery that you have to sort of muster that to go through, um. And revise with such care with with such a large stack of paper. Um, is is patience also something you have to muster, or does that come a little more easily than say the bravery or um, confidence?
2: Oh, I think patience is a is a real challenge um, because yeah, there I'd, I'd love to be finished with the book and and so I was just telling my students the other day about how tough it is when you're you know you're faced with a page where you know you have to make three or four significant changes and, you know, many fewer ones, I mean, many um, smaller ones, to actually go through and and tackle every one of them and not just think, well, you know, I've done these three. Maybe I can get away with leaving some of these smaller things um, as they are. And um, the the way we came to talking about this was through um, John Gardner. We were talking about a chapter from his book, The Art of Fiction, um, and, uh, in this chapter called Common Errors, um, one of the, um, the faults that he talks about in a writer is, is frigidity, um, which sometimes has to do with, um, not taking the characters and their situation seriously enough, um, and sometimes has to do with not taking the act of writing seriously enough. Um, and I told my students that this is the thing that, that I fear most, that, you know, the part of me that would really like to be done with the book will just kind of, you know, not take the revision as seriously as, as I know I really have to in order to get those things right. Um, and so that's the thing that I feel like I'm always guarding against. And the thing that patience is going to be most helpful towards is just making sure that I really deal with everything that I know is wrong, even though that's going to take a long time and a lot of, a lot of effort and honesty
1: and as you discover new things as you in the learning process it gets there there's more yeah are you writing short stories while you're writing um the novel or are you focusing exclusively on this
2: piece um pretty much focusing exclusively on this piece i've written the beginning of one short story and completed one short story during the 4 years that i've been working on the novel but i just haven't really wanted to to take too much time away or to wrench myself out of the world of the novel um, in order to work on short stories. Um, I have written some nonfiction pieces recently which has been really fun. I just uh um wrote a response letter to Mahmoud Ahmadinejad <laughs> of Iran. Um fabulous <laughs> and uh um for a website called juicy.com, J-E-W-C-Y dot com. Um he wrote a uh, a letter addressed to the American people, and so uh, a friend of mine, Ed Schwarzschild, invited a number of writers to to write in response to him and um that exercise was so very different from what I was doing um that it was it was kind of fun to to enter into that that territory and you know take take a little breath yeah um,
1: well i see the sports guys are out there so we're gonna have to wrap it up the sports report comes after this show there are literally
2: sports guys out there Michigan Wolverines t-shirts yeah they really are (laughs) wave (laughs) to the sports guys
1: (laughs) um but I want to thank you so much for joining me today it's been a real pleasure
2: thanks so much for having me Ashley this has been fun
1: and are you doing any readings or anything coming up anytime soon that we can let the folks know about Uh, Not to my knowledge. Not to your knowledge. (laughs) So let's check out J-E-W-C-Y dot com. (laughs) That's that's new, hot, right off the um, electronic press, (laughs) as it were. My name's Ashley David. My guest today has been Julie Oringer, author of How to Breathe Underwater. You've been listening to The Living Writers Show on WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. Thank you very much to our engineer, Chaz Barrett, and thank you to you for tuning in. Please stay tuned. The Sports Report is next.
0: One, two, three. If you close the door The night could last forever Leave the sun shine out And say hello to never All the people are dancing and they're having such fun I wish it could happen to me But if you close the door i never have to see the day again If you close the door The night could last forever Leave the wine glass out And drink a toast to never Oh, someday I know Someone will look into my eyes and say Hello, you're my very special one but if you close the door I'd never have to see the day again Dog party bars, shiny Cadillac cars And the people on subways and trains Looking grey in the rain As they stand to All oh, but people look well in the dark And if you close the door the night could last forever leave the sun shine out and say hello to never all the people love dancing and they're having such fun i wish it could happen to me cause if you close